Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. In today's episode, my co-host Jimmy Johnson and I speak with Dr. James Renahan on his forthcoming book, For the Vindication of the Truth. This book is planned to be released on January 31st by Founders Press. We encourage you to go to their website and order this book. But until then, we hope this conversation on the First London Confession of Faith will be profitable to you. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. And we have the privilege for the third time to have Dr. James Renahan on the podcast with us. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Renahan. Thank you, brothers. It's good to see you again and be with you. So you have written a commentary on the First London Baptist Confession of Faith. And with that being said, why is it helpful to understand the historical context and the theological content of this document in particular? Yeah, the uh, as I understand it, it's scheduled to be released on the 31st of this month. Um, you know, I think it's Crawford Gribben who has said that the First London Confession of Faith is one of the most important um, documents in Baptist history. And you see it talked about in a variety of places, but so far as I know, no one has ever before made an attempt to uh, look at it, uh, to expound it. And um, so I, I took that uh, task up trying to do it. Now, you asked, uh, what about the historical and theological context of the document? Well, see, that's exactly what I've tried to do, is to write an exposition in those terms. Um, I have taught Baptist Symbolics ever since 1998, uh, many, many, many times, both when I was at uh, in Escondido at IRBS here in Texas, but also overseas in a couple of different places and in a variety of churches uh, around the United States. And way back when I began to teach on the Second London Confession, I realized that it was important to begin at the beginning, which is basically the First London. Now, um, it's my view that uh, we, that confessions of faith being historical documents deserve to be understood in their own context and history. That is, we, it, it's very easy to read an old document and read it in the light of what's common in our day and age and to interpret it that way. But uh, I became convinced, what, in, fa- in fact, while I was doing my PhD D work, it came to me that some of the modern ways that we view old documents fail really to understand what was intended by uh, their original publication. Now, you, you, you can't get in, uh, I'm not talking about authorial intent, because you can't get into the minds of any authors. But what I'm talking about is how, how would any of these documents have been understood by the people who published them, by the churches of, uh, who were the people in the churches who signed off on them, or even by the broader Christian community? How, how were they viewed? And that's where we need to go first and foremost in our understanding of 
confessions. And so, um, I, I decided that what I needed to do with the first London was try to put it into its context, both in terms of history, because even, for example, the, the articles towards the end of the confession that deal with political circumstances change. Uh, there, there's the first edition of the confession was in 1644. Then it was revised in 1646. Then it was revised again in 1651. And the, the political uh, commentary or exposition or doctrine that is confessed in each of those is different because each one of them comes at a different political circumstance in the history of England and especially London because it was published in London. So to, to think in terms of the historical and then the, the contextual, what I mean by that is what, what was the currency of theology in the day? How, how did they understand words, phrases. Um, let's, let's say that you were a member of one of those seven churches and uh, the confession of faith was put before you to read. How would you have understood its language? Uh, maybe not exactly in the same way that someone today would understand it. And so I, I, it seemed to me really important to go back and to ask the question, how would it have been understood by the subscribers and also by the the Christians around them. And one of the things that I did was um, I discovered quite a few um, books, uh, mentions in books by opponents, criticisms that were made, some of them quite lengthy uh, books that were written directly against the Confession of Faith, others uh, in passing in this or that uh, work. And so I, I wanted to ask the question, how do these people who are critics and opponents view this document? What are they saying about it? And how does it evidence response to these critics? So that's the, that's the, the contextual situation. Um, what was going on in the 1640s that uh, influenced this both in terms of the, the culture in which they live, that's the historical part, and the theology uh, that was accepted in the day um, how does, how does the confession fit? And I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm working on my exposition of the second London confession, which, uh, in fact, this morning I was working on chapter 30 of the Lord's Supper. And, um, I want to do the same thing there. Um, what, how, how would a member of one of the, the churches in 1677 understood the doctrine? That, that's the question I'm trying to answer. Hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, before we move on to the next question, I just had a follow-up uh, and the uh, initial answer you gave us. You mentioned a class that you have taught since 1998, Baptist Symbolics. Uh, for the sake of our audience, can you just tell us what Symbolics is? Yeah, sim symbols are ancient, is an ancient term that refers to uh, creeds and confessions of the church. They symbolize the faith. Thank you. Very helpful. And so as we continue to talk about uh, one of the confessions of faith, the first London uh, confession, what are the historical origins? What significance did men like Kiffin, Knollis, and Spilsbury play in the formulation of this document? Yeah. Um, Matthew Bingham has published a really excellent book called Orthodox Radicals. And he's also published uh, a couple of articles in academic journals. And I think that he has convincingly shown that the 
appearance of the First London Confession at the end of 1644 was in response to a demand that was made by the Westminster Assembly. Um, the Westminster Assembly was not particularly friendly to um, groups that deviated from their perceived theology. Now, in 1644, they hadn't yet come to the point where, well, no, let me put it this way. In 1644, you had Episcopalians, you had Presbyterians, you had Congregationalists, you had a variety of views within the Westminster Assembly, but they all practiced infant baptism. And they, they weren't particularly amenable to the, uh, the Baptists. Um, Matt, shows that they weren't called Baptists back then, but that's beside the point. Anyways, the Westminster Assembly, apparently fearing that they might have been uh, politically treasonous people who would undermine the, the strata of society, demanded that they give an open and plain declaration of their views. And so in 1644, uh, they, they, it was about a month, maybe five or six weeks after that request came more than a request of strong demand from the Westminster Assembly. The, the confession appears. Um, soon afterwards, it was critiqued in print by some important men, including a couple uh, who were members of the Westminster Assembly, uh, most notably in the first case, Daniel Featley. And so in response to Featley, but also a, a Presbyterian in London named Thomas Bakewell, they revised the confession, and so you had in 1646, oh, I think it was about 14 months after the first edition, the second revised edition came out to clarify some of the things that had been said and to respond within the confession itself, within its paragraphs or articles, um, to some of the critiques that had made. And then um, five years later in 1651, a minor revision uh, came out the third time, probably mostly uh, for some further clarification, but also because the political circumstances had changed and they wanted to update what they said to, to meet um, what, was, what was happening. In 1644, Parliament and the King are at war. By 1646, it's pretty obvious that Parliament will win. In 1651, the king has been put on trial, executed in January 1649, and now England is trying to find a new political system under which it can operate. And so the, the various statements about the civil magistrate at the end of the confession reflect those three different circumstances. Now, you asked about William Kiffin, Hanser Doles, and John Spilsbury. Um, in, in the confession itself doesn't give us uh, the names of the authors or editors because it is really an edited doctrine uh, document in many ways. But uh, some of the opponents seem to indicate that Spilsbury was a major contributor, if not the primary editor of the document. Kiffin probably was involved. Hanser Knowles didn't joined the movement until 1645, so he wasn't part of the first edition. And one wonders um, how much he had to do actually with the 1646. He signed it, but I don't know that uh, there's any evidence that he participated in the revision as it came out. So Spilsbury for sure, Kiffin uh, almost certainly, Knowles as a signer in 1646. 
As you have said multiple different times that there were a few different editions of of the confession, and you kind of already answered to the fact of whether or not there were any significant differences, and and it sounds like you would say, no, most of them were political um, and adjusted to the times in which they were written. So moving from that discussion, what would you say the relationship is between the first and second London confessions? And are there any significant theological changes that take place between the two? Well, do you mind if I go back to the, uh, the other question? Because actually of course. It's, it's more complicated than, uh, than what I've already said. You know, the critics, the critics, um, the, 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 the one, the two who made the longest critiques were Robert Bailey, who was a Scots commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, and Thomas Bakewell, who was a Presbyterian layman in London. But Bailey was an astute theologian, and he, he made some observations on the 1646 edition that uh, in, in my exposition, I, I acknowledge are sometimes actually difficult to uh, resolve. Let's let me use that word. Um, he claims that much of the strength of the Calvinism, uh, meaning uh, predestination and and what we would know as the five points of Calvinism, that much of that was watered down or maybe uh, expressed in such a way that perhaps Arminians could subscribe to the 1646 edition. Uh, which is a really interesting observation. And uh, I, I think that I, I, I don't agree with his conclusion because he was a critic who was trying to find all the bad things. But nevertheless, the fact that they um, shaved off some of the strength of their articulation of the five points in the 1644 edition is noteworthy. Likewise, um, and, and this is a really serious problem, that Bailey uh, addresses. In 1646, to use his language, they scraped out some important statements about the doctrine of God and the personal relations of the persons of the Trinity. And they made a, they, 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 cre- they committed a real faux pas, in my opinion. In, in the 1646 edition, there is preface to it a letter. And the letter suggests that if anyone has any further questions uh, about the doctrine of the churches, they could look at a book written by a man named Samuel Richardson, who was one of the subscribers. And Bailey um, accurately reflects the fact that uh, they make this statement. But when you go and read Richardson's book, uh, he's quite unorthodox on the doctrine of the Trinity. And... Uh, he, he almost seems to be a tritheist. He wants to deny the uh, eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. And Bailey recognizes this fact, and he, he says, I can't believe that the members of the churches that subscribe to this confession would actually hold such a, uh, a heterodox or even heretical view. And I, I think he's right. Um, in my exposition, I, I say this, this is a difficulty that has to be overcome. And the only way that it can be overcome to bleed over into the, the, the question you just asked me is to put it in the light of the second London confession. So, you know, it, 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 did the first London um, 
Did, were there changes between them beyond politics? Well, that's a possibility. And uh, you'll have to read the book to, to think through some of those things. Were they, you know, you know, there were seven churches in London surrounded by what seems to have been, at least in, in the language of, it's either Bailey or Featley, um, thousands who didn't, of, of what we would call Baptists, who didn't subscribe to their confession. They're in the midst of these people. Did they shave off some of the rough edges of their Calvinism? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Now, if I can move forward to what you just asked me, because they tie together. One of the, the main themes of the book is that the First London Confession, in its various iterations, is, is really a good confession. It, there, there's nothing wrong with it, but it has deficiencies, and some of these deficiencies I've just given to you. And left to itself, it's possible that it could be charged with unorthodoxy or heterodoxy. Um, uh, you know, the, its worst enemies might want to say heresy. I think that that's o- an overblown rhetorical statement that doesn't deserve to be applied. One of the themes of the book, though, is that the, the authors, the editors of the Second London Confession assert in their uh, letter to the judicious and impartial reader that the theology of the two confessions is the same. And so I argue that First London is incomplete and imperfect without Second London, and that Second London clarifies whatever deficiencies might be present in First London. And I try to show that by, for example, on the doctrine of God, if you read chapter two of Second London, you'll see that they incorporate uh, a good bit of language that comes right out of the 1646 edition of the First London Confession. And they do so in the context of that much better explicit doctrine of God that's contained in Second London than First. And so they weren't afraid to take language from First London incorporated into Second London in a longer statement that is thoroughly orthodox. So, you know, um, you see that many times throughout Second London, it, it takes up language from First London um, as a means to supplement or, or express the doctrines that it's confessing. So, yeah, it's, it is important to see them in relationship to each other. Uh, Second London, uh, you had several men who signed both confessions. You had the same churches issuing both, although there were many more who issued, uh, signed on to the Second London in 1677. Uh, a period of 30 years is not that long uh, between the two confessions. And so uh, even in the 17th century, if somebody was 30 years old when the first London was published, they'd only be 60 when the second London was published. And uh, that's a reasonable lifespan for a lot of people. I mean, Hansard Knowles and William Kiffin both lived uh, to into their 90s. You know, so you had people in the churches who were alive and well. Likewise, you had a, um, a trail of writing. You, you had all uh, a lot of books that had been published, so people could examine the claims, uh, is the theology of the two confessions the same? And ev- every bit of information says, yes, they were. That is a helpful clarification in the relationship between the first uh, editions of the first London. And thank you for speaking to uh, the theological uh, similarities between the first and second, but uh, perhaps it might be helpful for you to take just a moment to briefly describe to our audience what new covenant theology is. As I ask you this next question, 
What do you make of those who confess New Covenant theology who are unwilling to confess the second London, but are willing to confess the first? Yeah, okay. Um, maybe it would be better to speak of New Covenant theologies, plural, because, I, and to be honest, I haven't read up on um, the development of things for a couple of years, and I don't know where some of the men are, and I wouldn't want to misrepresent them. But uh, based on what I have known in the past, there are a variety of approaches within the camps. Um, but uh, And so New Covenant Theology basically says, uh, no, I, I don't want to try to define it because I'm, if I define it one way, somebody else is going to make a comment on, on your blog that says, no, that's not what I believe, but I'm an, I believe in New Covenant Theology. So, uh, you know, it, unless you're able to talk about all the different varieties, I'm not sure that it's uh, it's the best and wisest thing to try to to pin any of anything on any of them so we'll let those brothers express themselves as they would like to do so but that that me i can still go ahead and answer your question because you you will find a number of men who argue um things such as the first london confession is a true baptist confession the second london confession is a compromise document um the First London Confession has a different view of the law and covenant theology to the Second London Confession, etc. You have those kinds of statements. Well, the, let me just address those two questions. The first one is really a misunderstanding of the First London Confession, what it's all about. Um, because it usually, that, that objection is usually framed in terms of, well, you know, um, the, the Second London Confession was uh it, it reflects the westminster confession and the baptists adopted it because they wanted to uh, identify with the presbyterians and there would be a certain amount of safety in doing so etc and of course that fails to to recognize the fact that in 1677 all of the dissenters were being persecuted and to identify with the westminster confession or the savoy is actually to bring more persecution on yourself than uh than not but also um it it, 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 it fails to recognize the, the, uh, the fact that the first London confession was intentionally published in order to demonstrate their orthodoxy or the similarity of faith that they had with, um, the members of the Westminster assembly. It, it, at that point, uh, you still have everybody at Westminster involved in the church of England. Uh, there, some of them may have been Presbyterian. Some of them may have been. Uh, Anglican or Episcopalian in their views, but still uh, the Presbyterians wanted to reform the Church of England to be a Presbyterian church. The uh, Those who were committed to Episcopacy wanted to see it continue to be Episcopalian. You had uh, independents or Congregationalists who were hoping for a Church of England that would be comprehensive enough to include Congregational churches. Um, the the first London was written in that context to say to those men, we agree with you. We're like you. We're not heretics. Uh, please uh, recognize that fact and give us the freedom to worship according to our consciences. And then when they revised it in 1646, um, they even more so followed that pat pattern because they... Um, in responding to Daniel Featley and Robert Bailey and, and Thomas Bakewell and uh, Thomas Edwards and, and the other critics, 
they continued to shave off the rough edges and to express themselves in ways that would be acceptable to the pedo-baptists around them. And I say in the book, and I, I don't say this as a criticism, but I say the first London Confession is more of a compromise document than the second London Confession. But that was their purpose. You see, that's why they published it, because they wanted to identify with those churches. And so to make that that criticism really misunderstands and misrepresents the historical circumstances of the day. Um, the second one, to say that the, the second London Confession um, has a different view of the moral law, uh, the covenants, uh, it is also a very serious misunderstanding. You know, First London was based primarily on a couple of sources. It was based, um, about 50% of it comes from a document from 1596 called the True Confession, which was written by separatists in the Netherlands. Um, then it was uh, the William Ames's The Marrow of Sacred Divinity is the second most important source. And uh, there are a couple of other minor sources along the way. But when you look at a document like the 1596 True Confession, it doesn't address matters of the moral law and covenant theology in the way that the later confessions do. Uh, all that the First London Confession is doing is following the pattern that has been set out by the earlier confessions. And it was published prior to the publication of both the Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith. So they didn't even have that to look to as a source. They used the best available documents. And so to, to you know, when, when you come to an old document and you say, look, this isn't there, therefore they didn't believe this, is totally bogus. You, you can't say that. Um, th there are other good reasons why a confession of faith may address or may not address than to say, well, because it's just, it isn't there, they didn't believe in that. It just does not follow. And so that's a really simplistic uh, approach to the the uh, First London Confession, and it, it simply cannot stand up to critical analysis. So, Dr. Renahan, you've you've already completed and it's about to come out the the commentary on the First London Confession. As you said earlier, you are working on your commentary of the Second London and writing both of these. In what ways do you desire your books to benefit its readers or their readers rather? Well, I first and foremost, I, I hope to be able to put these two confessions of faith into their historical, cultural, and contextual circumstances so people can read them and understand them, not read into them modern views, whatever, whatever those views may be. There, there are a wide variety of things that can be read back into these confessions. Um, and so I, I would hope that readers will be able to look at this and say, that's what it, it was intended to mean. You know, I, I just to repeat in different words something that I said earlier, my desire would be for a member of one of those churches to be able to read my exposition and say, yes, that's what we meant. I don't, I don't intend, pardon me, that modern readers must necess necessarily agree with what uh, they intended by their language. But if modern readers don't agree with what they said, I think honesty requires them to say, this is what they meant, 
but I don't agree with that. Therefore, I don't agree with this part of the confession. I take it another way. Um, let's let me let me just give you a, you know a real easy take on that. Uh, chapter, well, in Second London twenty six four, the Pope is Antichrist. Um, virtually every church that I've encountered. PCA, Reformed Baptist, OPC, they all take an exception to that. Why? Uh, That's my question. Why? You know, I I don't personally, I don't take an exception to it. And uh, the reason is that I think it's misunderstood by a lot of people. It's in a, a paragraph and in a chapter on ecclesiology, not eschatology. People stumble over the fact that 2 Thessalonians 2 is the proof text. But if you take the first half of that paragraph, which speaks about Christ and his rule in the church and the rightful place that he has, compare it to the second half of the paragraph, which speaks about the Pope and what the Pope claims for himself, it's very clear that the Pope is Antichrist by the claims that he makes. Um, and so, you know, if, if somebody wants to object to that statement in Second London, okay, I, I really, you're free to do that. But do so recognizing that uh, your reason for um, objecting to it um, needs to be understood in light of the ecclesiological focus of that paragraph. And I do think that um, if somebody reads uh, my exposition of 26.4 in Second London, hopefully they'll say, oh, wait a minute. It's not about eschatology. It's about ecclesiology. I guess it's right. Thank you for that uh, example, and uh, we hope that these two books that you have written will uh, profit your readers in the way that you desire. Uh, To conclude our conversation, what final encouragements do you have pertaining to the First London Confession, uh, either editions or the Second London Confession of Faith, or your upcoming book, or anything else you want to encourage our audience with uh, pertaining to 1689 Baptist theology? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, uh, what I would say is that w- we need to recognize that they're, they are good confessions. In fact, what we've done here at IRBS is, uh, as a matter of principle, we've adopted the First London, the Second London, and we've added to it the Baptist Catechism from 1693. And I like to call those the Baptist three forms of unity. So th- those those together, all three of them, are our um theological documents are the guideposts that that we or the the guardrails is a better word to put it uh that we seek to um to you know focus our attention on and i i would suggest um that that's a really good uh way to move forward is to recognize the commonalities between the three documents um uh, except all three i'm not i'm not saying that any church has to do so but recognize that all of those documents belong to us um, in as part of our history, and they can shed a great deal of positive light on us. And so I, I hope if people will get this first volume that will be out soon, God willing, uh, they'll be encouraged by um, what they read. And then hopefully in about a year, the uh, the second volume will come out, and I hope that that will be an encouragement as well. Hmm. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. James Renahan, president of IRBS Theological Seminary, about his forthcoming book, For the Vindication of the Truth. We are going to 
get you information of where you can go to to buy this book. Uh, in this conversation, we've talked about the historical origins of the First London Confession of Faith, uh, the significance that men like William Kiffin, Hansard Knollis, and John Spillsbury played in its formulations. We've talked about the differences between the 1644 and 1646 editions of the First London Confession of Faith. We've talked about the relationship between the First and Second London. We've even talked about some ways that uh, people have tried to pit the First London and the Second London Confession up against one another. And so we hope this conversation will be profitable to you. Dr. Renahan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us to discuss your forthcoming book. My pleasure. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.